There is a small, tiny town in Kentucky called Wilmore. And in Wilmore, Kentucky, there's a Christian university and seminary called Asbury. And on February 8th, so maybe just, you know, 10, 12 days ago, uh, they had a chapel service that they normally do for their students. And at the end of the chapel service, they had a gospel choir sing a song to kind of uh, wrap up the service. And at the end of the service, four or five students felt God was telling them to come forward and pray at the altar. And they did. And they came forward and they prayed. And soon they grew from five students to 10, to 20, to 100, to 1,000. And they've been praying around the clock ever since. Going into its 12th day, thousands of people are gathered at this university chapel. They had to have satellite locations. They have people coming in from all over the world to see what's going on. Ecuador, other places, other colleges like Indiana Wesleyan University, Purdue, are started to have these prayer movements among the young people. And they're marked with prayer and repentance and uh, testimony and worship. And it's not this anything crazy going on. It's just a calm spirit of peace and turning back to the Lord. What an amazing thing. I've been glued to their feeds and the things they're putting out as I watch this. I'm just, my heart is deeply encouraged. And what encourages me also is the churches in the area are now opening up and they're full as well as people come. And so it's this move of God that is coming and it's uh, spreading across what's happening. May it come to central Wisconsin. May we see many hearts that are far from God turn towards God. One of the things that makes this genuine is that students are sharing deep pain that they experienced in their life is being healed as they pour out their heart to God. God's presence is in their healing. God's presence is healing their pain. God's presence is giving them strength. It happens in 2023. God moves and heals pain it also happened in 1100 B.C., as we're going to see this morning. There's an awakening and a revival in a movement of God's Spirit that comes and brings healing to broken places. All moves of God begin with prayer. You can see it throughout the Scriptures. You see it throughout church history. All moves of God begin with prayer. And I'm sure every generation has said this, but... In my mind, I'm thinking if there was ever a time for God to pour out his spirit amongst the United States of America in a powerful way, now is it. We are in a series on prayer called When the Church Prays, and we've been uh, praying and hoping that God would, through this series, increase our wonder of him, increase our awe of him, that we wouldn't do this series just to say, hey, look at how great we pray at Crossview Church, but we do this series to realize that the prayer is leading us to God and that we're encountering God and we're experiencing God in a new way. And so my hope is today we'll be encouraged as we see an amazing woman of God named Hannah. And Hannah teaches us that even in our darkest hour, prayer can carry us to the throne of God. Even in our darkest hour, prayer can carry us to the throne of God. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 2, 
where we're going to see a prayer of transformation where God meets a human being in their brokenness and transforms them and heals them. Today we get to see where heartache collides with the living God. Today we get to see what happens when heartache and pain collide with the living God. We're going to be spending most of our time in chapter 2, but in order for you to understand what's going on in chapter 2, I have to share some things in chapter 1. And so we're going to start by looking at the strength of Hannah's heartache, how bad she ate. The wonder of Hannah's prayer doesn't arrest us, doesn't compel us until we realize her heartache and her amazing discernment to turn to God in that heartache. Most human beings in Hannah's place forget God in the moment. She knew that God could be faithful even in the hurt. I'm just going to look at some highlights of the tragedies, and we do this by looking at chapter 1. First of all, Hannah's husband, Elkanah, was a product of his culture, and he had two wives. He had Hannah, and he had another wife named Peninnah. Hannah was barren unable to have children, which in itself is a loss and a pain and a grief. Peninnah had lots of children. We don't have a specific number, but it says she had sons and daughters, plural. This was a multi-painful tragedy for Hannah. There's the comparison that she's probably always looking at the other. There's the loss that she senses as a woman who wants to have kids and in this culture, if you didn't have a son as a mom, your future and security was in serious, serious trouble. There was a yearly worship service that took place. And each year, the people of God would go to show their allegiance to God. And they, in part of that service, they would dedicate their children to the Lord. You can imagine Hannah, year after year, going there and watching Peninnah with all of her kids being dedicated, what that was like. But add to that, there was pain upon the pain that Hannah was experiencing. Let me read this to you in 1 Samuel 1, 4 to 7. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, to go to this worship service, he would give portions of, his meat, of the meat to his wife Peninnah and all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. So we see that her husband did have some empathy towards Hannah. Verse 6, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, that's Peninnah, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. We don't know exactly what she did, but she did something to rub salt in the wound of Hannah. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her, till she wept and would not eat. Deep pain, deep sorrow, insult to injury, provoked. So when you have pain, it wasn't a place where you're comforted and brought to wholeness. It was a, plain, a place where you're inflicted even more. That's what she was experiencing. Verse 8. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? 
Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Give me a break, dude. Come on. This woman is hurting. Don't make this about you. So you think he had at a certain point, he had empathy. But now she has to deal with this, where this, her husband, who's supposed to be supporting her, helping her, nurturing her, makes this about himself. Side note, if someone ever comes to you in brokenness and pain, don't make it about yourself. Don't say, aren't I a great friend? Aren't I a great son? Aren't I a great husband? Aren't I a great wife? Aren't I enough for you? You don't need to be hurting. Enter into the pain. The dysfunction and brokenness that she was living in is highlighted in just that little interaction. And she could have done a lot of unhealthy things to deal with the pain. But where does she turn? Look at what she does. She's an example to any human being who is experiencing pain and anguish. This is what she does in 1 Samuel 1.10. It says, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She didn't know what to pray. She was overwhelmed. She didn't know why she was in this situation. She didn't know why God would let her go through that. She didn't know what to do. Some prayers are just simply wet with tears and have no words. And I think sometimes those are the best prayers we can pray. And she wasn't just sniffling, weeping bitterly. It speaks to the level of what she went through year after year after year. And in that pain, she turned to God. I think God met her in places during those tearful, wet prayers and did things in her heart and her spirit that would blow us away if we understood. She ended up taking a vow. Look at verse 11. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you would only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will be used on his head, meaning she'd commit him to the priesthood of the time. Verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, who was the priest of the temple, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and he said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Now she's misunderstood by a priest. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my grief and my anguish. And Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Later the passage says, the Lord remembered Hannah, and she had a boy, and she named him Samuel. And she weaned him. And when we say wean, it's not our understanding of weaning. Weaning means she raised him to the point where he was somewhat self-sufficient, probably around 13. 
And she brought him back to the temple and gave him back to Eli as she promised in her vow to the Lord. Look at verse 24 to 28 of chapter 1. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine for sacrifice and offerings, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord, for his whole life will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. The next chapter, we're going to see an amazing prayer that Hannah pours out to God in the midst following these circumstances. And we're going to see in this prayer that Hannah's heart was transformed when she took her deep anguish to God. I believe the Lord met her in that place in such a powerful way that she honestly did want a son. She honestly did want to have children. And then she gave one away. She gave her son away, and I think she was really good with that at that time because God did a work in her heart. We see it in this prayer. It comes out plainly that God, by his Spirit, did something in the life of Hannah. God can meet us in the darkest places of our lives and bring healing and transformation. This is something that is true to our day. Because of the age of my kids, I've had an opportunity to talk to people who are college student aged. I've talked to many different other people, had many different conversations. And what I find is there's this general despair that people have. Life is hard right now. Now, not saying universally, but generally life is hard. There's this despair that's happening. And with, with that comes this search for meaning. This search for purpose. What is life all about? I think it's a big question that many young generation in our country are asking. Pastor and author Gavin Ortland, who spoke at a conference that Glenn and I recently were at, talked about how he's a pastor in the California area, and they would go to these parks in California and talk to people about Jesus. And just say, hey, have you met the Lord? Have you know who Jesus is? And he said they got all this training about how to refute all the stiff arms. Well, I don't know if Jesus is really a son of God. And so then they got studied on how to deal with that. And I don't know if he's really did. And they knew how to deal with that. And they, they had all these answers in their heads to all the hard questions. They went to the park and he saw this young man and he said, hey, uh, I'm Gavin. And they started having a conversation. And he said, hey, let me ask you, have you ever heard about Jesus Christ? What do you think about Jesus? And the young man said, I don't know. I never thought about him. It wasn't a stiff arm. It was just this, never heard of him. Never thought about it. There's this sense of meaninglessness in life today. And in this passage, we see that life makes sense when you're in relationship with God, that even in our darkest moments, he can take care of us. 
I read an article where sociologists have studied despair in history compared to now. And in history, it seems like the despair and the depression were linked to certain events. But in today's world, it's almost like this general disparity that kind of just hangs like a cloud. Do you know that the average American looks at their phone 2,500 times a day. 2,500 times a day. And most of that time with some, I would say, is a search for meaning. They're comparing. Do I measure up? Isn't it any wonder why there's a general sense of despair? when you are bombarded 2,000 times a day with messages wondering where you measure up in life? Guess what? As followers of Jesus Christ, we have the answer. The answer to all human longing and despair is God. The answer to all human longing and despair is God. God in all of his wonder, in all that he is, is the answer. This is why we are doing a study on prayer. We're not doing a study on prayer to say, look how great we can pray now. We're doing a study on prayer to encounter the living God because the answer to all human longing and despair is the person of God himself, the real God. Not a religious God, not a Christian culture God, the true living God himself is the answer to the human heart's longing and the human heart's pains. Hannah encountered the true living God in her anguish, in her deep sorrow, and God transformed her. Hannah is a gift to us. I need the story of Hannah in my life. Because when I go through difficult things, I can become so self-absorbed on that thing and so fixed on that issue, I lose sight of the reality of who God is. Many of you in this church have taught me, like Hannah, to look to God in anguish. I've watched many of you through the years walk through very painful and difficult things, and the only choice you had was to hang on to God, and you did. We need the church. We need the church present, and we need the church past to help us, to encourage us, to let us see. Crossview Church's mission is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus. Why? Because we need more of God. One of the hardest but greatest parts about being the church is seeing brothers and sisters we care about walk through very painful things. And if you have any empathy at all, it hurts when we see people hurt. So what do we do? We surround them with prayer. We bring them and lift them to God's presence. We write a card, a note of encouragement. Some people say, I hear people go through really tough, tough things, and I don't know what to say to them. That's good. Don't say much. Just go be with them. Ask to pray for them even if it's a quick little prayer. Hannah and her heartache invited God into that place and it radically changed her. 
And the truth of all this is Hannah's not the real hero. And if she was standing here, she would say that, and we're going to see that in what she wrote. The real hero in all this story is God because he is the one who is the answer for the longing of the human soul. So Hannah goes through the story, and then there's this amazing passage, this amazing prayer comes forth. And if you want to know what God is like, pay attention to this prayer. If you want to know God, take note of the prayer that Hannah prays, because it is a reflection of who God is. The prayer we're going to look at is an overflow of the reality that's going on in Hannah's heart. And I want to invite you as we look in this to think about this statement. God, what do you want me to notice here? Pay attention to God in these verses. I think the essence of prayer is paying attention. Paying attention to what's happening. So let's dive in and look at this prayer. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. First she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My heart rejoices in the Lord. Notice she went from deep anguish, weeping bitterly, to her heart rejoicing. How does that happen? Her heart is rejoicing in the Lord, not in the fact that she had a baby, not in her circumstances, not because there was this change, not because of the fact things seem better. She is rejoicing in the Lord. She senses God's presence. She senses that God met her in her pit, picked her up and is carrying her through, and she still feels him clinging to her soul. You can't manufacture that. So how do I make that happen? You can't. You can't. Your part, though, is to spend time and notice God in all things. Spend time and notice God in all things. There's a guy who's, I appreciate, who's a mentor, pastor, and author, and I was in a webinar, seminar with him this week, and he's a man who's walked with God for a long time. He has a very strong prayer life. And we were talking about how the busyness of life pulls us in all these directions And I said, well, so what's the answer? We feel overwhelmed with our schedules and we want to connect more with God, but it seems like we don't have time. Like, what do you do? Do you just carve out little times and start to grow? What is the answer? And you know what he said? He said, when you're in the grocery store, pick the longest line and get in it. And just sit there and kindly notice what's going on around you. Begin a conversation with God. Be kind to others. He said, I make it a habit. Every line I see, I get in the longest one because I get built in time with God. Carry God throughout your day. She's experiencing that. She says, the Lord is my horn. The word horn, there's a symbol for strength. She's saying, I rejoice in the Lord because he is my strength. The Lord met her in her deepest longing and now gives her strength that she can't imagine, infuses her with joy, not 
happiness necessarily, but this joy which is stronger than happiness. It's not as fickle as happiness, and it gives her strength. So God is a God who lifts us up and joyfully gives us strength. Look at verse 2 of this prayer. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. God is in total and complete, oh, I'm sorry, God is distinctively different than anyone and anything we know. There are the three what I call there is nones in this verse. There is no one holy. There is no one besides you. There's no rock like our God. God is holy, set apart, distinctively different. We can run to him in our earthly sorrow because he is outside of that, greater than that. Many times we don't pray because we don't realize who God is. We think he may be just like us, but a little bit better. No, he's in a class all by himself. Nothing can touch him. He's set apart. He demonstrates that he rules over all human events and interactions with holiness and strength. There's no comparison to God. No rival, no equal, no other strength or protector will do. He's beyond all comprehension and beyond all comparison. That's who God is. Look at verse 3. Don't keep talking so proudly. Or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows. He knows. And by him, deeds are weighed. God empowers us to live for him. As I said, Hannah's not the hero here. God is. God empowers us to live for him. So what's the human response? Hannah's call here reminds us it's a call to humility. We're called to be humble people. From the boasting world all around her, Hannah said, this is it. Don't keep talking proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance because over the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks, right? We live in a boasting world and we are a boasting people. We are products of our culture. We need to be careful as Christians that we don't point to the culture of our world and say, look at what they're doing. We're not like that. Thank God we're not like that. And I get where that idea comes from. When you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. The world doesn't. So there's a difference there. There's a set-apartness there. But to think that we're not ever products or touched by our culture is a mistake. Because the fact is the spirit and age of this world creeps into our hearts probably more than we know or that is good. And we're not untouchable or beyond sinful temptation. We can be a boastful people. And God's calling us to humility. We need this series on prayer because we need God. Everything wars in our hearts and our minds. Our culture affects us, and we get caught up in it in ways we don't realize. And the Lord is distinctively other. He knows all. He knows every action and intention of the heart. That is why he can weigh all the deeds of humankind. Perfect justice. We need God. Look at verses 4 and 5. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, 
but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. God is in total and complete control. God is in total and complete control of the godly and the ungodly, of the Christians and of the wicked. He is completely sovereign, and the end result of all things is in the hands of God. Hannah was healed of barrenness. She ended up having six children. So why in her prayer does it say she had seven, referring to herself? Because seven is the number of completeness, and she had a son. Her rival, who would provoke her, Peninnah had many, but we never hear of her again in Scripture. There's a blessing when God moves in our hearts. Lines one and three, are, we see something interesting. In lines four and two and four, we see something interesting as well. Look at lines one and three, starting at verse four. The bows of the warriors are broken. Jump down to the first part of verse five. Those who were full now have to hire themselves out for food. In lines one and in three, the strong become weak. Look at lines two and four, second part of verse four. But those who stumbled are armed with strength. Look at the second part of verse five. But those who were hungry are hungry no more. Lines one and three, the strong become weak. Lines two and four, the weak become strong. The final two lines in the pattern are reversed. This emphasizes what God does. This is God's heart and hand for the weak, his heart and hand for the vulnerable. The Lord sees the powerless and disadvantaged, and he is moved in his heart, and he acts. When it comes to God, weakness is an asset. It's not a liability. When it comes to God, it's good to be weak. It's bad to have personal strength because in your weakness, God meets you in that place in a perfect thing. I've watched people go through difficult things and they say, I don't know if I have the strength to face this. Perfect. That's exactly where you want to be when it comes to the economy of God. You want to be in that place because the very strong characteristic of God is he goes to the hearts of the weak and he proves himself strong. In fact, we don't want to stiff arm the move of God by earthly strength. We want to approach him in humility and weakness. God says, I'm a God of justice. I will always do what is right. And one of the things that he always does that's right is he strengthens the weak with his hand and his power. Look at verses 6 to eight. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down the grave and rises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. God rules over all. This is Hannah's prayer. She's getting really personal here. In verse 6, she says, he's the God of light over all darkness, death to life, grave and raised up. That's what he did with me. Verse 7, she says, he's sovereign and does according to his plan and his ways. He makes some poor, some rich. He humbles some, he exalts others. 
God can do whatever he wants when he wants. A person's status is not considered to be unchangeable because God does what he wants to do and God can change that. I love verse 8. It talks about the needy. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Do you see that in verse 8? In this culture, the ash heap was the garbage place. And what would happen when people were really, really desperate with their times, they'd go out to the ash heap. It was like this symbol of we are at the lowest possible place we can be in human life. And God lifts people when they're there. Lifts the needy from desperation. This past Monday, I gave a sermon at a chapel service in New Lisbon Correctional Facility. Some of you were praying for me. I appreciate it. It went really, really well. The Lord was present in a really neat way. But I stood around, I stayed later, and I spoke with some of the men there. And it was broken, and I asked them this question, tell me what it's like growing up for you. And it was broken story after broken story after broken story after broken story. And it reminded me of the ash heap. But then, in each story they told that moment when they encountered God, and how God met them at the ash heap and brought them out, And it was an amazing reminder that he is not only this amazing creator of the world, but he's also the redeemer and the restorer. End of verse 8 says, For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He places the world on the foundation of his sovereignty and his rule and his reign. Evil is permitted for a time, but not long. Look at verses 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. When facing the impossible, those faithful to God will prevail because they trust in God alone. In verse 9, it says, the faithful servants inherited this. What does it mean to be a faithful servant? Does it mean you have to be perfect? No. It means you're imperfectly committed. You're committed deeply, but imperfectly walks out God's ways. Committed to following Jesus above all things. We think Christianity is like, say this prayer, go to heaven. It's so much bigger than that. Christianity is you become a child of God and you love and you follow Jesus the rest of your days and you reflect him imperfectly but humbly and consistently to all those around you. The wicked rely on their own strength, their own talents, their own riches, their own achievements. The faithful servants point to God and reflect his goodness and his glory in doing so. What a prayer this is. This tells us so much about God. Look at this list. All that from this prayer. We are reminded how awesome God is when we interact with this prayer. And here's the truth behind Hannah's prayer. 
Do you know what the truth behind Hannah's prayer is? As we look at all this, the answer to all human longing and despair is God. Right where we started. Let that sit in a minute. The answer to all human longing and despair is God. Nowhere else, no one else. As we close, I just want to give you some time to let that sit a second. I want us as a church to sit with this thought that the answer to all human longing, to all human despair, is God. And then I'm going to pray back chapter 2, verse 2 for us, and we'll close but I want you now to kind of enter into a sacred space, if you will, in the presence of God and be led there by thinking about this phrase, the answer to all human longing and despair is God because he is so great. The answer to all human longing and despair is God.